I have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 22. It was uh, my privilege for almost 10 years to have Jeremy on our team at Maranatha Bible Church. And we had a blessed and wonderful time together. I have a great love for him and, and his family. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that he's found a loving church and how uh, he, he brags about you guys and he loves you guys. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful for this privilege to be able to share the word with you today. <clears throat> Probably the first question you're thinking is, what does this subject of uh, how to be ready when Jesus comes have to do with apologetics? And I will try to answer that in this hour. We'll look at some Bible prophecy and especially look at uh, Revelation uh, chapter 22. All right, let's pray and ask God for wisdom as we open this word this afternoon. Father, bless you for a beautiful day. We give you praise for your amazing and wonderful grace. We thank you for your word that gives us such great hope. Even today as we study together, fill us with joy and peace in believing because you are the God of hope and we abound in hope through Christ Jesus. And we thank you for that blessed hope, uh, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, indeed to be ready for that day and help us to be busy until that day in sharing our faith with others. We'll give you praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, you, you may be wondering, well, <clears throat> what does this topic, uh, how to be ready to meet Jesus, Revelation chapter 22, have to do with uh, apologetics? Well, uh, take your Bible and, and let's turn just for a moment to uh, 1 Peter three fifteen, <clears throat> one of the key verses of this whole conference. Sometimes people ask us why we have hope. Or how we have hope, or why we are why we are Christians. First Peter three fifteen, sanctified Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So there will be times if you're living the Christian life, if you have shown Jesus is in your life, if you have hope and joy, people may ask you why. And that's when you need to be ready to give an apologetic or a reason for your faith or a defense for your faith. <clears throat> I'm going to recommend a book to you if you don't have this book. Uh, probably one of the greatest books published on the subject of apologetics is Josh McDowell's The Evidence That Demands the Verdict. This is the latest. The New Evidence Demands the Verdict is actually two volumes in one. I want to tell you his story as to how he came to faith in Christ and uh, one of the things he points out in this book, as far as evidence for the faith, is Bible prophecy. And he points out that just in the first coming of Christ, there were 332 prophecies fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, what that tells you, of course, is, first of all, that the Bible is the word of God. How could the Bible predict Christ being crucified 1,000 years before the cross, give the details of they pierced my hands and my feet, gambled for my garments, and so forth. How could a book predict that Jesus would be born of a virgin 750 years before Christ? How could this book predict that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver? Well, all of this uh, uh, evidence of fulfilled prophecies indicates that, indeed, the Bible is not just another book. It's the Word of God. Secondly, fulfilled Bible prophecy confirms the fact that Jesus is God and the Messiah uh, predicted in the Old Testament. However, it was not 
a theological argument. It was not a legal argument. It was not a philosophical argument that brought this man to saving faith. And if you look back at, at 1 Peter 3.15, it's very personal things. You give an account for the hope that is in you. The first thing that unsaved people are going to notice is not an argument. The first thing they notice is your life. And what Barry, I love Barry, and it seems that we're on the same page. Barry, I'm going to say some of the stuff, same things that Barry said today. That your best apologetic reason you give them to believe is your life. And so if you don't mind, in the front of this book, there is the personal testimony of Josh McDowell. How did this uh, man, who's probably the, uh, one of the greatest apologists of the last 40 years, how was he saved? Why did he come to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, and I'll, I'll read this and then we'll get to our PowerPoint here in just a minute. As a young man... Uh, Everybody seemed to be in religion, so he started going to church. <clears throat> he said, I went to church. I got into it 150%. I went morning, afternoon, and evening. However, I got in the wrong church, and I felt worse inside the church than I did outside. So he asked his dad about that, who was happened to be a farmer in Michigan. His dad said this, if something doesn't work, chuck it. So I chucked religion. Now, going on for the next 10, 15 years... He determined to find the meaning of life, so he thought maybe uh, education is it, and education would have the answers. He would be able to find truth in education. So he enrolled in the university, but found it very frustrating, and he began to realize that education was a lost cause. He went to the university seeking answers. Well, that left him kind of empty. Education did not seem to find truth for him. So he decided prestige must be the way to go, and so he became very popular on the college campuses, involved in student offices and all kinds of campus activities. But when the thrill wore off, nothing had changed, really. And so his life began like this. <clears throat> Every mo Monday morning, I'd wake up with a headache because of the way I had spent the previous night. My attitude was this, another five boring days. Happiness for me revolved around three party nights, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But still his life was empty. It was at this point when he is searching for truth that he met some people on the college campus that he said were different. I noticed a small group of people on campus, eight students and two faculty, and they were different. They had a quality I deeply admire in people. That is conviction, and he goes on to say purpose. I enjoyed the dynamics, he said, that he saw in their lives. There was something more about this group that caught my attention. It was love. These students and professors not only loved each other, they loved and cared for people outside their group. So he said, I decided to make friends with them. Well, they began to talk about God and Christianity. Now, at this point, Josh McDowell felt that Christianity was for weaklings, not for intellectuals. But one day he turned to one of the girls in this uh, group and said, tell me, what changed your life? Why are you so different from other students and faculty? Now, this is what I'm saying is your best apologetic. It's your life. It's how you are different from the crowd. If they can see Jesus in you, 
You will draw them to the place where they will search for the truth about Christ. That's where the reasons for your faith come in. And so she looked me straight in the eye and said two words I never expected to hear in an intelligent discussion on a university campus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I snapped, don't give me that kind of garbage. I'm fed up with religion, the Bible, and church. And she quickly shot back, Mr., I didn't say religion. I said Jesus Christ. From that point, as a pre-law student, he began to examine the claim that Jesus Christ is God. He continued this for some time. (coughs) Until one day, one night in my house in Union City, Michigan, at the end of my second year of the university, he put his faith in Christ, said, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross. And I realize you're the only person on earth that would die for me. At that point, he realized God loved him. He became a Christian. But it wasn't an argument or reasoning that brought him to that place. It was a life that was different. Now with that in mind, here's how we get to this side. If you're not ready for Jesus to come, if you're not walking with Christ daily, how are you going to draw people to Jesus? You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> All the arguments in the world are going to, not going to win souls if you're not living the life that will draw them to the place where they ask, well, what is the truth in Jesus Christ? Now, uh, as I said, he points out, indeed, the Bible does fulfill prophecy. We'll talk a little bit about that. And so in your Bibles, Revelation 22, if you have that, <coughs> you'll excuse me, I need to add a little to this. How to be ready when Jesus comes again. Revelation 22, 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And by the way, that's not only Revelation, that's the whole Bible, right? You need to heed the words of this prophecy that Jesus Christ is coming. Now, this picture here is actually dealing with the second coming. We know that Christ will come for his church before the second coming in the rapture. So that between the the return of Christ... Uh, and, the re- and the rapture is actually seven years of tribulation. But we're praying, of course, for Christ to come back, first of all, for his church in the rapture. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. To render to every man according... Now, I'm not changing... Yep, I forgot i got to change these things. Uh, yeah, there's those verses. Let's see. All right. Now, let's go on to this next screen. I don't remember... When you were a kid, you, did you play that game, hide and seek? What did you used to say? Ready or not, here I come. And the Lord is really saying to us, his church, that we need to be ready when he comes again. Now, in this particular passage, the word come occurs seven times. And three times, Jesus says, I come quickly. The idea here is when he comes, he comes like a flash of lightning, like a lightning flashes out of the sky, like a thief in the night. When you don't expect him, Jesus may come. And we need to be ready for that day. Fifty times in the Bible, we are commanded to be ready. And this is an urgent theme throughout the Word of God. Now, there are twice as many prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ 
as the first coming of Christ. So there's more in the Bible about Christ coming again than there is about his first coming. So we, we need to understand the urgency of this truth. Next to the subject of faith, his coming is the most dominant theme in the New Testament. Yeah, many Christians are not even thinking about the subject. <clears throat> Every time that the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned eight times. So in this life, we are to prepare to meet God. Now you can fill in the blanks if you have a little outline there. <clears throat> first of all, you can be ready through the word of God. I think I trust that's why you're here today. You want to be ready to share your faith and you want to be ready when Christ comes again. These words, it says in verse 6, are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, not only the book of Revelation is prophecy, okay? You could really say all the Bible is prophecy because it tells the truth about God. The word prophecy itself means to tell forth God's truth. Sometimes it's predictive, but it's all from God. The prophet spoke the word of God to the people. So you need to know God's word is true and faithful. The Bible is God's word, and he cannot lie. Hundreds of prophecies were filled in his first coming, confirmed by the science of archaeology and by changed lives. So let me just stop here, and there's a lot of good stuff here in the study book. If you turn over to, I believe it is page 12, and I don't know if you went to one of the seminars today, this is an excellent example of Specific prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Now, let's say that instead of 332, there were only 10. The odds of 10 prophecies being fulfilled in one person are astronomical. And here's just some examples. Born of a woman, born of a virgin, from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, called Emmanuel, a prophet, priest, judge, king, ministry of miracles, resurrected, ascended, and so forth. All of these are in the Old Testament. Some of these prophecies go back 1,500 years, 1,000 years, 700 years. But it shows again that Christ is indeed the Son of God. And that the Bible is a supernatural book. So when John says these words are faithful and true, put your confidence in God's word because of prophecy. Another reason I believe the Bible is it says it is the Word of God. One thousand times or more, shall we say, we read the words, it is written, or thus saith the Lord. So the Bible claims to be God's Word. And that's confirmed by prophecy. Third evidence for the Bible is archaeology. Now you understand that the Bible is always being attacked by humanists and secularists and atheists and so forth. <clears throat> Some of these claims, however, are disproved by archaeology. Around the uh, 1850s, the German higher critics began to uh, spread their false ideas or apostasy through seminaries in Europe. That came to seminaries in the United States. Pretty soon, those seminary grads began to infect major denominations 
in the United States, you know, most of the major denominations, Lutherans, Methodists, and so forth, used to preach the gospel. Some still do, but a lot don't anymore because of the apostate ideas that came from Europe. Now, the, the German uh, theological critic said, you know, the Bible is like uh, Aesop's fables. It's a story of fables and myths, but it really didn't happen. So he said, you should go to the Bible to learn a moral. But it really didn't happen. So they began to make some claims. For instance, they said that Abraham never existed because they had never found the city, the Ur of the Chaldees. Well, since that time, archaeologists have found the very city the Bible talks about, the Ur of the Chaldees. They also said, uh, <coughs> we don't uh, have any evidence there was ever such a person as Pontius Pilate. Well, since that time, they found a, a cornerstone in Israel that said on it, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. There was an a, a archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey at the end of the 19th century, listening to all of these attacks against the Bible, decided that he would retrace the steps of the Apostle Paul. So he went to Athens, he went to Corinth, he went to Philippi, he went to Thessalonica and those other places. And what he found out was that Paul was talking about real people, real events, that the, the Bible is not a mythical book. The Bible is a historically accurate book. Uh, Millard Burroughs, who to my knowledge is, is uh, not a born-again Christian, but he's an archaeologist, he said on a television program some years ago <coughs> that no archaeological discovery had ever controverted or contradicted the Bible. Well, that's quite a statement for an archaeologist to make. They have never been able to disprove the events and the people. Uh, William F. Albright, another archaeologist, has said what they have found is that the Bible is an accurate historical book, not a book of myths and fables. Real people and real events. Why do I believe the Bible? Claims to be the Word of God, prophecy, archaeology, but I also want to say <coughs> it changes lives. And this is the apologetic that we're talking about today. What caused Josh McDowell, an atheist who, by the way, was out to disprove the resurrection, when he heard Christians saying that Jesus arose from the dead, uh, he thought, well, you know, that'd be a good thing for me as a law student to uh, disprove the resurrection. But after studying it, he became convinced that indeed the resurrection really happened, and in the end, he came to faith in Christ. But the first thing <clears throat> that got his attention, the first reason for him to believe, was the changed lives of those college students. I want to give you one more evidence why I believe the Bible. Jesus did. Jesus did. Now, we have theologians and preachers today who will say, yeah, the Bible contains the word of God sometimes. Yeah, the Bible's got some good stuff, uh, spiritually speaking, but it's, it's not the word of God. Well, who are they contradicting? Jesus. Now, uh, let me share a little logic with you. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. If you contradict what Jesus taught... How can you be a follower of Jesus? 
You've got to make up your mind. If Jesus was wrong, he lied. If Jesus was wrong, he was not God or the Son of God because God cannot make a mistake. He's omnipotent. But I would say, and I would agree with Jesus Christ, I would disagree with the critics of the Word of God. So those are five reasons why I believe the Bible. It claims to be the Bible. Well, archaeology changed lives. Bible prophecy, and of course, the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as well. So you need to be ready through the Word. You must know the Word. Blessed is the one who uh, heeds. That means to obey and respond. Uh, Psalm 1 talks about this. Blessed is the man who does, meditates. How often? How often should you meditate? Day and night. It's not on Sunday morning for Pastor Jeremy's sermon, right? It's, we ought to get into the Word every day, right? One of my favorite verses uh, is Jeremiah where he says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Now, I have a confession to make. I like to eat. I do. Brother Brian here. i never seen such a thin guy put it away. He loves to eat. And I hope you love to eat the Word, right? And don't wait for a meal once a week. You ought to be in it every day. Meditate upon God's Word and obey it. It'll change your life. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. So the first chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of Revelation, the same blessing is there. Not enough to read it. It's great to read the Bible. Not enough to hear it. Now, remember the New Testament church, they didn't have their own Bibles. So when they got their Bible is when they came to the local assembly. They didn't have buildings yet. Probably not until the third century did they have buildings. They met any place they could find, maybe in homes or along the river or in the courtyard of a synagogue. Christians met together. And what would they do? They would read an epistle of John or Paul or Peter or, or part of the Gospels as much as they had. They heard it read and they were thrilled to hear the Word of God. And, of course, some, uh, this is when manuscripts began to be copied. If they did have copies, of course, they were able to uh, read them uh, personally as well. So God's Word blesses us, especially the book of Revelation, if we'll do three things. Read it, open up its truth so Jesus can reveal himself to you. Hear it, as the early church did. Faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Uh, I hear Christians say, oh, my, my faith is so weak. Why is it weak? Well, you want more faith? Get into the Word of God, right? You've got to feed your faith if you want to have a strong faith. And you need to keep it, all right? Apply it to your life. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. And that is 1 John. And I, need to, I keep forgetting I got this thing behind here, okay? Heed and read. There it is. Read it, hear it, and keep it. Okay. Let me talk to you again about the fact that the word of God is eternal and unchanging. Okay? I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now, you need to realize that people do that today. Cults, what do cults do? They add to the Bible. Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, even Seventh-day Adventists are telling you that the Bible's not enough. You need the Book of Mormon. 
Uh, you need their writings. You need their books in order to know uh, what the God's word is. So we're not to add to the prophecies that are written in this book. And <clears throat> some uh, charismatic folks will say, hey, I had a dream and, and I had a vision. I have a new revelation. That's dangerous. That's dangerous, according to Revelation 22. You don't add to the revelations that's found in the Word of God. We have a complete revelation of God's truth for us, all that we need that pertains to life and godliness, according to 2 Peter 1. So don't add to the Bible. Secondly, you don't take away from the Bible. And as I was saying, what the liberals are doing, what the apostates do, is they take the miracles out of the Bible. The, uh, the, the goal of the German theologians was demythologize the Bible. In other words, they said, we, we like the morals, take the miracles out, take the resurrection out. And, and some mainline churches today, they still teach that idea that we just don't believe in the miracles, but, you know, the spiritual stuff is, is pretty good. But that's a dangerous thing. They uh, would then eliminate the miracles, the creation, the resurrection, the supernatural from the Bible. They question, they deny its truth, and they substitute humanism and evolution. What's the Bible say? Those who add, those who subtract, will never see the holy city, but instead will endure the plagues of eternal fire. Now, this is a whole other issue, but I want to throw it in. <clears throat> what you believe about creation is absolutely important. Amen. Where the Bible is attacked so often is this. We think God used evolution to bring about creation. Well, I just sent a, an email to a seminary recently about this because they had someone coming to their conference who says, well, the, the days of the Bible uh, are not literal 24-hour days. They're millions or billions of years. Uh, well, first of all, word Hebrew word yom never means that with a numeral, like first, second, third. Um, in every case, wherever you read the word day with a number, it always means a 24-hour day. And also, those days in Genesis 1 are evening and morning, evening and morning. If they were millions of years, what are you going to do? Have millions of years, a million years of evening, and then a million years of daylight? Wouldn't work, would it? And yet, they're trying to accommodate, accommodate the Bible for evolution. Let me just say this, and we'll go on. Evolution is a theory. It's not science. Now, that's a radical idea. I'll tell you why. True science is observed in a laboratory. No one has ever observed evolution happening. You cannot reproduce it in a laboratory. So what? You have to take it by faith. So you have a choice. Either you're going to believe the evolutionist or you're going to believe the word of God. It is very clear to me that the languages of the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, the writers of the New Testament, never understood creation as millions or billions of years. It was not till the time of Darwin that people said, well, maybe God could have used evolution. And this is how often some compromise God's word to accommodate it to the modern mind. And so it's a dangerous compromise. Let's not subtract from the truth of the word of God. Secondly, you're going to be ready for Jesus to come. Not only must you heed and read and obey the word of God, 
you need to worship. I am so surprised how many people today who say they're Christians, they've accepted Christ, but they're not going to church. Now, you know, go back 50 years. It was understood if you're saved, you worship, you go to church. I am finding people say, I made a decision for Christ in college. I made a decision uh, for Christ at a rally where, you know, I trusted Jesus. But they're not in church. And, and their idea is, well, I don't have to go to church. I'm not under law. You know, I'm under grace, so I don't have to go to church. But you know what? We're told to worship God here. And notice that John is overwhelmed. He sees this angel, and uh, he's so overwhelmed by this experience that John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed these things to him. And the angel said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. And if you're a brethren of the prophets and those who heed the words of this book, worship God. So we don't, in fact, in every case in the Bible, when people try to worship an angel, the angel says, don't do that. We are not to be worshipped. All right? But notice that in the Bible, all the angels worship Christ. In fact, Jesus accepted worship ten times. Uh, Again, this is why we cannot accept the teachings of the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, because they would tell you Jesus is a created being or an angel. And not the eternal... Now, they will say he's a son of God. What they mean by that, a son of God, is an angel. He's not the unique, only begotten son of God, as the Bible teaches. But you know what? We're told to worship God. And, and certainly, the Lord Jesus is worship worthy of our worship. In fact, we read in the Word of God here, singing a new song. So what kind of song do we have? And I enjoy the quartet and do it uh, this morning. Uh, Our song is not a sad dirge, it's not a lament, it's a song of heartfelt joy and loud uh, adoration. Now, uh, I I don't want to scare uh, some of you adults, we have a tendency as adults to tell our teenagers, turn music down, alright, now, I don't want to scare you, but be prepared for this. In the book of Revelation, the word loud occurs 21 times, 21 times, and so uh, uh, some of your young people may have a, a point when they say, can we, can we turn the praise music up, all right? And I think if you go to any, I don't go to a lot of concerts, but a lot of, you go to concerts today, the music is loud. You know, I made the mistake in going to a Southern Gospel concert one time, sat in the front row, and I about, I about lost it because we were so close to the, uh, to the speakers, you know. Well, I don't think you need to hurt your eardrums, but the point of the matter is this is enthusiastic, loud adoration. Myriads of angels we see in chapter 5 saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. To receive power, riches, wisdom, might, and honor, glory, and blessing. And every created thing I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, dominion forever and ever. Are you worshiping him? We need to worship. Be ready for that day. An hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And such people the Father seeks you get this? Such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, I, I love, you know, being a preacher. You're sitting up, you're watching the congregation. Yeah, I know you, you watch the preacher, but we watch you. And I, I love to watch people worship. Um, some people are, I mean, they're, they're smiling, they're happy, they're singing, they're raising their hands, and then there are other people who are, I'm not sure, really there. You know what I mean? They're sitting there, but they're not really with it yet. I, I don't know what they're doing. They're thinking about the football game, or they're thinking about dinner, or what. 
But we, worship means participation, right? And he is worthy of our worship. You've got to be ready for him to come. You need to worship. Thirdly, you need to be witnessing for Christ. Really, isn't that what apologetics is about? When God gives you the opportunity, be ready to give a reason for your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, to seal a book meant what? Lock it down, put it away. Hide it. We are not to hide the truth. We're to spread the truth, right? We're not to hide the gospel. We're to proclaim the gospel. We're to be witnesses for Christ. Now, the book of Daniel, we read, was sealed up until the time of the end. You know what? Daniel's no longer sealed. Daniel's an open book. Because of current events, you can understand the book of Daniel. When Daniel talked about world empires and what would be happening in the future, we see it today in current events. Well, our Lord Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, tell the good news to all creation. By the way, the gospel is not quit smoking and go to church. I would agree with that, quit smoking and go to church, but that's not the gospel. What is the gospel? Christ. Amen. Christ. So you really haven't witnessed until you point someone to Jesus, right? That's the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Is that wonderful or what? When the gospel gets to the whole world, then the end will come. We are approaching that day. And we thank God how the gospel is spreading through places we didn't think we could get into, like China, fastest growing church in the world today, is in China and Africa. And yet, you know, Chinese Christians are oppressed, but they're multiplying in small groups and underground churches and so forth. But when the gospel gets to all nations, then the end will come. It says in Second Peter, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We hasten something when we speed it up. We want to speed up his coming, but it won't happen until what? The gospel gets to all nations. And so that is our responsibility today. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. So witnessing is not just for preachers and missionaries, deacons and elders, right? Every one of us should be a witness for Jesus Christ. Got to tell this story as I have time. Some of you think you can't witness for Christ because you don't know all the theological arguments. By the way, nine times out of ten, when you witness to, to someone, they're not going to bring up an argument. Most people never will argue with them. If you have any kind of friendship, they'll like to know what you think anyways, whether they agree with it or not. They're not really looking for an argument. They would just like to know your reason for your faith. I want to tell you the story of a, this is a true story of a little five-year-old girl who stepped on a piece of wire and it was embedded in the bottom of her foot. <clears throat> and she was taken to the emergency room and the doctor is digging out this piece of metal that got into the, her foot. And this little girl loved Jesus. And so she witnessed to the doctor and the doctor accepted Christ. The next day, the nurse who happened to be in the same room went up to the little girl and said, you know, I'd like to know Jesus too. And this little girl, five years old, led a doctor and nurse to Christ. Now, if a five-year-old girl can do it, you can too. All right? All you have to do is to be able to proclaim clearly why you believe in Jesus Christ and why you know Jesus. Fourthly, until Christ comes, we need to be working for the kingdom of God. 
No, the Bible says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Okay, we're not saved by works, but we're saved for good works. God saved you not to sit. He saved you to serve, right? So that you can work for him. And there are many ways you can work, whether it's in the nursery or as a a deacon or teaching a Sunday school class or working with the children's ministry or a neighbor next door who needs some help, a shut-in who needs a visit, someone who's discouraged and needs a word of encouragement. You can do all those things in the name of Jesus. Or maybe it's taking care of the grounds or running the sound system. You can do it for Christ. And the Lord says, you know, behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The word done, he's talking about the works that you have done. What have you done for Jesus? Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be rewarded or recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Now, the judgment seat of Christ has nothing to do with punishment. That happens at the great white throne. This word in the Greek is bima. English would be B-E-M-A. The bima seat comes from the ancient Olympics where the athletes would be rewarded. They would come up to this raised platform where there would be a table and the, the judges would give out the crowns and the laurels for, for those who had won their events or won their races. So the idea of the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ is that the Lord wants to reward us for how we have worked for him. Isn't that amazing? He is a rewarder. Okay? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. That he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, you may have been doing things for Christ for a long time, and very few people have said thank you. Maybe you haven't been very much encouraged, but I guarantee you one thing. Jesus will reward you for all that you have done for him. I often have to remind people that when you serve the Lord, the pay is out of this world. Amen? Amen. And you can look forward to it, right? Now the Bible says again, we're all going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us will give an account. Now, I tell you what, what motivates me is that one day when I leave this world and go to the Bema seat, I will give an account for my life, my service, and my ministry. Now, talk about a final exam. Whoa. A lot of Christians don't even realize this. All they think is, wait, I've trusted Christ, I'm going to heaven, hallelujah. Yes, it's wonderful. But God is going to hold you responsible, Christian, for how you've lived as a Christian. And how you have served him. So you need to be ready for that day. You're going to give an account. That means we will give an account and say, Jesus, this, because I love you, Jesus, this is what I did for you. And I hope that's why you want to be ready for this day, right? You want to be working and ready to give an account at the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, our works will be tested by fire. Now, this is not talking about hell here. We're talking about testing the quality of our works, okay? The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, I don't have time to read the whole passage. 
it talks about wood, hay, and stubble, silver, gold, precious stones. Now, if you put these through the fire, you know what happens to wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to go up in smoke. However, silver, gold, and precious stones can survive. That's the kind of quality work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. But he himself will be saved. In other words, you can never lose your salvation. But you can lose your reward. Let me just say this. And this goes for preachers and musicians. If you get the opportunity to serve God, and you do it for your ego, that's wood, hay, and stubble. Uh, I've been in church meetings where... uh, Someone will get up who's got a great voice. And boy, they sing and, and they really wow you. And, but their, their, their goal is to impress people. I'm not sure that's ministry. I think that's ego. And then I'll, I'll hear somebody comes up and maybe doesn't have the best voice in the world. But they sing from their heart and give glory to Jesus. That blesses my soul. Because I know it's their personal testimony how they love Christ. So again, whatever we do, we're doing for Him, right? Not for ego, not for self-glory. And God will test the quality of our work. Let's see. There it is. The fire will test the quality of each man's work, and if he shall receive a reward. Now, the last one. Now, I know we were told today we should assume that everybody here at this uh, conference uh, is a Christian, and I hope so. And the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. When we talk about washing our robes, what what does he mean about washing your robes? Blessed are those who have washed their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter by the gates of the city. What's it talking about? Being washed in the blood. You know the old gospel song? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Remember that one? Well, the only way you can be washed in the blood of the Lamb is you trust Christ and you're saved. And you're not trusting in your religion. You're trusting in the blood that was shed on the cross for all of your sins. You know, this is the one detergent that can take away the stain of your guilt and shame. The blood of Jesus. Washes it all white as snow. Amen? Say amen. Amen. I know in the Baptist church you say amen. That's good. Now it says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's chapter 1, verse 5. The blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. First John 1 John 1.7 Redemption is through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. But you know what I found out? You can never assume everybody's a Christian. I'll give you an example. I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And uh, thank God for that college and what it did for my spiritual life. And uh, I couldn't believe we had an evangelist come in and give the gospel at Moody Bible Institute. And I'm sitting there and saying, wait a minute, you're not supposed to get into this school without being saved. You have to write a testimony or profession of your faith to become a student at Moody. And they invite evangelists, and guess what? Students were getting saved. And I began to realize people can profess Christianity and deceive themselves and not really be saved. So be sure you're washed in the blood and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Now, I love the way the chapter ends. It ends with this wonderful invitation to come to Christ. How many times Jesus uses this wonderful invitation to come? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty, 
Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 1 Peter 5, 7, we come and we cast our cares upon him. Then there is the invitation in John seven thirty seven, Come to me and drink. Boy, this is where apologetics fits in, doesn't it? All we're trying to do is give the water of life to thirsty, hungry people. Pascal, great uh, French physicist, philosopher, and Christian said, There's a God-shaped vacuum in every man which only Christ the Creator can fill. What are you doing? You're ready with the water, right? When, when they realized the emptiness of their life, as Josh McDowell recognized the emptiness of his life, here were some Christians who gave the water of life for Josh to drink and to trust Christ as his personal Savior. Let the one who's thirsty come, it says here in chapter 22. Let the one who wishes to, to take the water of life without cost. Why? Jesus paid the cost. Of course, the invitation is to come uh, to Christ in faith and repentance, receive him as uh, Savior and Lord. And then it says here in this chapter, come and enter the gates of the city. So only those who are washed in the blood can eat the tree of life. Only those who are washed in, in, the, in the blood can enter the city. Only those who are washed can drink of the water of life. You know, the last prayer of the Bible is in verse 20 of this chapter. Surely I come quickly. That's the last promise. And the last prayer, even so come Lord Jesus. You know what? There are some Christians who are not ready to pray that prayer. Uh, they, don't, they don't want Jesus to come today because they want to go to the mall. Some of them don't want Jesus to come today because they want to go fishing or they want to go to Hawaii. Or some Christians don't want Jesus to come because they're embarrassed about their Christian life. You know what? We ought to live every day as the day of His coming. We don't know the day of the hour. Jesus could come in this hour or a thousand years from now. We don't know. I think it's sooner than later. But the point is, we ought to be able to pray, Lord Jesus, come. Are you ready? Or are you ashamed if he did come? Here's a startling passage of scripture in 1 John. Little children, that's the beloved children of God, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This indicates that some Christians will be ashamed when Christ comes. They're saved, but they're ashamed of their Christian walk. So, in other words, you get to heaven by grace, but lose reward. But you've still got heaven. Hallelujah. But wouldn't it be much better to go to heaven and to be rewarded for faithfulness to Christ? And if you're going to get that reward, you need to abide in Him, which I think speaks of an intimate, personal relationship with Christ every day, abiding. It also means we need to practice what we believe. And because Josh McDowell saw some Christians who practiced their faith and were abiding in Jesus, he was drawn to seek Christ as his soul. So we need to get ready today. 
Well, I hope you were able to uh, fill the blanks there in your uh, study on how to be ready with Jesus comes. And they told us that we should save uh, a few minutes at the end in case you uh, have some questions. Uh, I apologize. I I talk fast. I'm a fast-talking Yankee. I came from up north, so you forgive me for that, I hope. But if you have any questions, just raise your hand and, and I, I'll, I'll try to answer those questions. Or if you have some comments, that's fine too, uh, before we are dismissed. Anybody got any questions? My last session this morning, it was, it was dead silence. And then, as people went out the door, then people started asking me questions. So if you have uh, questions, I'll be back. Or any comments? the coming of Christ. We got it all? Well, thank you for, for being so well behaved and uh, coming to now. I'm going to ask uh, the youth director to Maranatha Bryan, who's uh, with us today. Would you close this in prayer? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's pray again.